Hello, and welcome to Heroes in Our Midst. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop. This is episode four in season two, another episode focusing on our frontline medical workers in this challenging time. Now, just the fact that Dr. Chow Pham is an emergency room physician at the Health Sciences Center during COVID alone would make her a hero. Add to that, she's the ultrasound director in the Department of Emergency Medicine. She's an associate professor, Max Rady College of Medicine, and Rady Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. You put that all together, and she tips the scales in the hero department. But for me, her life story and the person she is because of it far outweighs her accomplishments in terms of what makes her an incredible human. She does not apologize for being real. She's not afraid to share the good times and the bad. And I hope that after spending this time with us, you'll feel as inspired as I did. Not only when I interviewed Chow back in January of 2021, but as I listened to it again and putting it together for you to take in. You don't hear a story like Dr. Chow Pham's very often. I would venture to say I may never have. And I am honored that she chose to share it with us from the very beginning. I did ask her one thing, though, before getting into her story. And that was in relation to how most of us view our medical doctors and what it feels like to actually be one. The two letters to our names having the MD, there is already a standard of ex expectation from those around us that we conduct ourselves in a very different fashion. But in all honesty, Michelle, it, during this pandemic, people look at physicians as true heroes and capes. We don't really feel that way because we feel that we're surrounded by other heroes. And it's the heroes who are the unit clerks and the hospital staff who are the cleaning staff. They truly are the heroes of the hospital. What does it mean to be a physician to me? It's a privilege to be able to serve in the front line to our patients, to our loved ones. And it has been a dream come true based on the journey that I've had to be able to be educated in Canada and to be able to be an eMERGE physician to serve in the front line for Manitobans and especially during this pandemic. You know, I love how you emphasized training in Canada and being from Manitoba. Now, you weren't born here, uh, Chow, so maybe really take us back because some of us, many of, many of the people listening, I mean, maybe we've always been Canadians and I think if we have been, we can't begin to understand how blessed we are. But those who, like you, came to Canada, you know, um, you remember another time. So I know you have an incredible story and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Take us with you back to Vietnam. So my experiences in my childhood has really taught me to live with intention. And um, I was born in South Vietnam after the Vietnam War. And uh, in the aftermath, uh, uh, after the war, living in a country that offered me limited opportunities, um, there my parents actually made a very difficult decision. My parents wanted, in the hope of a better future for me, made an incredibly difficult decision to help me escape from Vietnam at age five without my family. A decision that ultimately changed um, the course of my life. My dream to become a physician started in a refugee camp uh, in Thailand at age six ostracized and isolated when I realized that the doctor in the camp treating me for tuberculosis, um, which is a contagious disease, held the keys to not only my health, but 
basically to my admission to Canada. So I knew then that I wanted to become a doctor as a way of saying thank you to the wonderful people of Canada who offered me uh, countless opportunities and also as a way to give back to the disadvantaged children of Vietnam that I left behind. So through the charity that um, I co-founded in 1996 called Canadians Helping Kids in Vietnam, the charity works to improve the lives of some of the world's poorest uh, families, children who come from low socioeconomic status. And it's through living in gratitude that I believe that wherever and in whatever capacity we serve others, we can do a great deal to raise the quality of life and to fill lives with the promise of a better tomorrow. And that's kind of my life journey in terms of how I'm here today. Chow, can you take us back to when you were five? How much do you remember of that actual journey? Do you remember the, the boat ride? Do you remember how you came to Canada? So people often in, in childhood psychology, I think there is a certain age at which memories are formed. When you ask a toddler, do you, well, when you ask an adult, if they remember anything from their childhood, they probably will remember starting from the age of five and up because that's usually when our memories are formed. I do remember very, very well. And I think, especially being human, we remember the negative memories more than sometimes the good memories. And so when memories are traumatizing or when they are quite impactful, they stand out over years. So I do remember my escape from Vietnam and I do remember my parents waking me up in the middle of the night and um, they dressed me up in this cardigan And I didn't know at the time, but my parents had sewed some jewelry into the cardigan as a way of giving me some pieces of value, shall I need it in the future. But little did they know that the journey that I was going to go on, nothing was going to be kept safe. So my dad and my mom drove me out to this small town. And I remember it was very dark in the middle of the night and they looked scared. They looked very scared doing what they did. And I remember my grandfather standing in the middle of the, um, in the middle of the door and he blocked it. And he said to my mom and dad, you're making the wrong decision. You cannot let her go. So I didn't understand what was happening at the time. And my grandfather was crying. My grandmother was crying. And I started to cry because I just thought something is not quite right. Anyways, my dad, mom, after that uh, episode, they drove me on, it was on their motorcycle to um, the next town. And there I saw multiple people all whispering, very quiet, very scared, basically going onto a small boat. It was more of a canoe. From that canoe, then we landed onto a bigger fishing boat. And when I say bigger, it's nothing in comparison to what we as North Americans considered big. It was basically a small sized fishing boat that crammed in 40 people. And there my parents weeped and they hugged me and they kissed me. And that was the end of it. So on that boat journey, I we were there on that boat journey for close to two weeks. And now as a mom, seeing it from the lens of uh, of a mom, I would and knowing what I've gone through on my journey as a refugee boat child and being in the refugee camp for two years, I would never wish that upon any child or any other parent. But I had a hard time coming to terms with it as I was growing up. But I realized now as a mom myself 
my parents made a very difficult decision. It was a sacrifice they had to make because for them to find the passage for one boat ticket, at that time, you didn't pay in, mon you didn't pay in monetary value. You actually paid in bars of gold. And my parents just didn't have the money for more than one ticket. And so since I was the oldest and I was five, I also had a baby brother who was just born at the time. He was around two. They couldn't obviously let him go. And so they chose to sell all of their belongings because at that time when the communists took over, my parents lost both of their jobs. If you had any Chinese uh, ethnicity or background, you lost all possessions um, after their communism took over. And so they were both teachers. They lost their homes. They lost their possessions. And whatever they can scrounge up, they got one bar of gold. And that was my ticket to a new life. Now, did anyone take you under their wing when you went onto the boat? I mean, there must have been obviously some adults uh, present on that boat. Do you remember? And, and into that refugee camp, how did you, as a young little girl, do you remember that? My parents had actually reached out to their to my mom's cousin, related cousin, who had uh, two children of their own, and they had given them money and asked them to take care of me. And unfortunately, during primitive times and during survival mode, each family to themselves. So I was actually given under the care to, to that family. And that was who was supposed to care for me. Unfortunately, in the refugee camp, when I contracted tuberculosis, it's survival mode, it's survival of the fittest. And with TB being a contagious disease, I was ostracized and isolated. So I was not allowed to be in the same hut because at that time, everyone wanted a clean ticket of health so that they can be accepted and, and so that they can immigrate. So during the time that we had escaped, my auntie, my real auntie, my mom's younger sister, was only 16 years old. She was a teenager herself. She had escaped for herself. And when she realized what was happening in the refugee camp, she did actually, she did not have any legal guardianship over me. She had no verbal or indirect responsibilities over me. But I was five. I had no home. I had no shelter. I was sick. So she forfeited her chance. At that time, she was, she had a clean ticket to help. She was accepted to the USA and um, she forfeited her her chance to immigrate. She stayed back in the refugee camp in Thailand with me. And Thailand was by far during the search of the boat people was the poorest camp around the world. And um, she got a job working in a movie shack. And we were in the refugee camp together in our little hut for one and a half years while I was lining up every morning when the rooster would crow. I would line up with the other people and, and get my medication from the Red Cross station and for my TV. And that's that's a, a part of my past that I will never forget that I'm also very grateful for. Maybe for us, um, well, non-medical, we don't hear about tuberculosis a lot. Can you just give us a little, what is tuberculosis and how did that affect you? So tuberculosis or TB is a lung infection and it causes you to have a very bad cough and you can actually have what's called hemoptysis. You can cough up blood and it's a contagious disease and basically it's in a lung infection that can also see to the rest of your body as well too. It has to be cured with antibiotics. Uh, I would guess 
many people who would have contracted that in a situation like a refugee camp would not have made it. Now you did. And, and like you say, you knew at what, at six years old. So this was in this time that you were, the course of your life was becoming clear to you, but that's was because of a very special doctor that was in your midst and a hero to you. Tell us about that. So I don't know. And I do, I cannot remember the face of the physician, but I remember the the silhouette of a physician. And I just remember that in that one and a half years, every morning when the rooster would crow, I would go to the Red Cross station and I would see the same physician who would give me my medication and he would auscultate my chest. And, you know, they, they try, it's interesting. It's, it's not just a physician, but it was multiple physicians because one and a half years is a long time for somebody to do humanitarian work in one station. So I, I just remember there was multiple physicians, but um, it was what they represented to me. They represented in my mind at that time, a decision that I made very clear in my mind that I wanted to emulate them and I wanted to be able to serve others the way that they had served the refugees in, in the camp. It's amazing that you're in a refugee camp, this little girl facing all these challenges and you, you were already thinking about how you would help others and serve others because you had been helped. You know, it's wouldn't be almost an environment where you think a young child would see such a bright future. And that's amazing. That must have carried you forward. And um, so you're in Thailand at the refugee camp and obviously you recovered from your, t from your TB and, and how did the story continue? What got you from Thailand to Canada. And uh, I'm curious, did this um, aunt of yours or, or this relative of yours, did she get to come as well? And uh, tell us more. So after one and a half years, my auntie and I actually got a notice from the Canadian uh, government that they were accepting us to immigrate to Canada. And my aunt was so excited and little did we know, but she had started weaving sweaters and cardigans thinking that was going to be enough for us jackets in this new land that we were going, because <laughs> everybody told us that Canada was very cold. And so she would knit and knit and knit and she knitted these thick sweaters really what they were was cardigans. And so we finally um, made it to Canada and we were actually sponsored by a Mennonite church from Altona. And uh, they knew that they had a 17 year old young aunt who was caring for this eight year old girl now. They, the year that we came was in 19, March of 1986. And I don't know if you remember, Michelle, but that was the year we had the blizzard of the century. All the highways and the roads were shut down. So when the wheels landed at the airport, all of the other people who immigrated with us on the same flight, we got off into the airport and they were met by their own sponsors. And we looked around and it was freezing cold. And here we were in our little cardigans thinking that it was perfect for this cold weather. And we looked around and we were so lost and we, there was nobody there to come to greet us because that was the blizzard and our sponsors couldn't make it in on time and at that time my aunt was also pregnant and she was around uh, eight months pregnant or so so it was here's this pregnant young girl with this malnourished and I was eight but I really looked like I was a five-year-old I was still wearing five-year-old sizes right mm -hmm. so this lovely translator who was there for another family she was Vietnamese and she came up 
And she spoke to my aunt. My aunt showed her our papers, our acceptance papers from our sponsor from Altona. And um, she said, okay, let me call them. So she made the phone call out and she found out what happened. So she told us, and she was so kind to actually put us, um, she called for a taxi and she sent us, you're going to laugh, to the Balmoral Hotel. (laughs) So that was our first welcome and exposure to Winnipeg. And I laugh when I say the Balmoral Hotel because I work at Health Sciences Emergency Department now. And I love servicing my patient clientele, but a lot of them are also from the core areas of Winnipeg. But the Balmoral Hotel was what we were first um, greeted with. So at that time, my aunt went to take a shower and a knock was heard at the door and I was petrified. I'm thinking, I don't know who's knocking at the door, my aunt's showering, but I knew somebody wanted our attention. So I opened the door and I opened the door to this lady who was who was to me larger than life itself. She had blonde hair, blue eyes. And at that time in my mind, I call it a high nose because the the facial shapes and symmetry that I see, we don't really have nasal bridges. And I thought I came to a land of full of aliens, right? And my mom, well, I it was my adopted mom who I who I refer to as my adopted mom now, but she is from Winnipeg. And my our sponsors had called her and said, "Darlene, can you go and pick up our our family that we sponsored because we're stuck out in Altona, and um, bring them back with you, get them settled, and we will deal with it after the blizzard." So my mom had come and picked up my aunt and I, and you know, Michelle, that was the beginning of the end. My mom took one look at my aunt and I, and something magical happened. But she said to my sponsors, can you leave them in Winnipeg? I'll take over getting them established in in Canada. So my sponsors were so lovely because mom thought in her mind, if this young aunt and her her niece goes and lives out in Altona, it might be a very different lifestyle. And I'm sure my life would have been very different, right? But she wanted to keep us in Winnipeg and so that she could interact with us and she she was just so taken by us and she had also my mom was an IB history teacher and she herself had also worked with multiple Vietnamese families that they sponsored through their through their high school as well through a a refugee family that they sponsored and um, so my mom was very well versed in in working with refugees but somehow it was our relationship that just tugged at her heart and she wanted us to stay with her so we stayed with my mom and my sponsors continued to help out with the sponsorship, but mom took over everything that required her to get us transitioned to our new life in Canada. So mom put us up in a, she's got us set up in a small little apartment afterwards and I would go to school and she would pick me up every day and she would help my aunt with English, helped her cook, how to make beds in Canada because we don't really use sheets in Vietnam, just the little things like that, right? And, and oh, one thing I remember that she did all the time and it drove me crazy because I thought this lady, all she does is picks me up and goes and gets my teeth taken out but I had such poor dentition that she would take me to the dentist almost every week every week I had to have dental work and it was always one more teeth to come out so but I have great teeth now that's all I can say 
And so my aunt had actually um, met somebody. And so we, we got established in Canada. My aunt had met somebody and she uh, got married. And at that time, my mom had said, I would like to take Chow and have her live with me. And we talked about um, her being my adopted mom. And my aunt was open to that. And my aunt had communicated back with my parents and they were okay with that. And so my aunt got married and I had a new adopted mom. And um, one day mom came home and she said to me, do you want to be reunited with your birth parents? Michelle, if you know of any single adopted moms, you know, the children are not born from the womb. They're born from the heart. And so we had this beautiful relationship between my adopted mom and myself. It was unconditional love for her to offer to reunite my family, my birth parents and my brother. And I actually had a second brother who was conceived when I was in in Vietnam and uh, to reunite us. That is the true meaning of unconditional love. And so she wrote to the prime minister at that time and said she would like to to be a sponsor. And she sponsored my parents and my brothers to Canada. And we all lived like the modern family in in our home. They lived in the basement and mom put them through school, taught them how to drive, got their license. She took over as five years of sponsors for them. And she was solely responsible for my entire family. And she put my dad through accounting school, my mom through nursing school. And my two brothers, um, one of my brothers now an emerged doc out in Brandon, and the other one, he got his MBA and uh, and charter accountant, and they're doing really well. And and uh, we are a modern family. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, what an amazing heart. She knew that what was best for you was to be reunited, and yet at the risk of, right? Many of us would think, wow, to take the risk, right, of, of that bond, but being totally selfless. She obviously didn't worry about that at all. She didn't, she knew your bond was strong and solid and unconditional, but you talk about your family now, and I'm talking about all of it, that whole household that was together. What a lovely family, but my goodness, uh, what inspiration and motivation your brothers have really studied and, and gone beyond. And then your, 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 both of your parents, you know, at that point um, had the support and did more study and, and furthered themselves. Do you think, think from where you came from was there is there extra motivation then I mean we want to learn sort of from that right and was there motivation because of this new lease on life being able to come to a new country with the opportunities that were presented to you and your family it's the first thing is gratitude I think if your heart is full of gratitude the motivation is there if you speak to other immigrants, as an immigrant or a refugee, you realize that you are coming with nothing in hand. And so my parents had the mentality that, you know, they gave up after I left and after the Vietnam War and when my parents had to start from scratch in Vietnam, they actually did quite well. They got into a business and they did quite well in Vietnam to the point that they would be considered probably above the middle class in terms of income from where they came. And then they realized that they needed to make that sacrifice one more time to be reunited with their daughter. Mm. So they gave that all up to come empty handed again and start from the bottom of the totem pole and work up to build what they built for their household. So that mentality as an immigrant is, I think, very um it's very palpable because you realize that for you to create a better future for your family and your children, you have to work twice as hard, 
the rice is hard to be able to start from the beginning. And as for my brothers, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So what we model and what we see being modeled is very important. And so I see the the kindness and the love and the compassion from my adopted mom. And I see the drive and the gratitude from my parents. And it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful recipe. If you ask me, <laughs> I would say so, you know, Chow, have you ever talked to your birth mom about the moment that she had to watch you leave Vietnam without her? Have you ever visited that topic or is it too painful for her? Or, I mean, now with this lovely being together, I mean, and seeing that the sacrifice they made was the right thing. It was your opportunity at the life that you now have. Um, Have you revisited that moment with her? So my parents came to Canada when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, when you're a teenager, there's a lot going on in your mind and in your body. And I just remember even leading up to the time that my parents came, I've never been a kid that normally gets sick. That's funny, considering I was a kid that had TB and was very sick for a long time. But I was never a kid that was sick that had to miss school. But obviously, I felt a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. And the stress had manifested as a lot of somatic complaints of headaches and I kept on throwing up to the point that my adopted mom had to take me and we had imaging done and it was all nothing obviously but it was just a stress of not knowing that am I going to lose my adopted mom what are my birth parents going to be like the emotional turmoil that I actually had of the resentment of being let go on my own to endure what I saw on the boat journey, to see what I endured on in the refugee camp, because I hadn't, I hadn't resolved those emotions within myself. And so when you ask, did I ever sit down and have a chat with my mom about that? Now as a mom myself, it had to be done. It had to be resolved. And that was how I healed how she healed. So for us to actually have a healthy relationship, because until I became a mother myself, I never really understood the depth and the extent of that sacrifice, right? You would have to kill me before I would let any of my babies go. But in times of stress and threat, sometimes you make the best decision that you make as a, as a parent, and you hope for the best, you hope for the best. But yes, I, my mother and I have had our heart to heart talk. And mm. I understand it best now through the lens of a mom. Yeah, amazing. And like you say, there are, there are two sides of that. And it's so interesting, even though that was an opportunity that they, they let you go to Canada. It just struck me now when you said to reconcile that she let you go. What, what a life journey for you, though. And I think during the boat journey, what created that emotional tension for me was seeing other families flee together. But I was on my own. And so that made it very hard. I was on my own. And when you're five, you think you've been left, right? And so when you see other, like, for, for example, the family that my parents gave me to, they fleed as a mother, a father, and two children, mm-hmm. and everybody else was in family units. So it was very hard for me to reconcile that in my five-year-old mind. And then when I got sick, it made it even harder. Um, so when the, I, I still remember clearly the moment they stepped foot at the um, airport, my adopted mom had taken me and um, she had cut my hair and give me a home perm. And the child that my parents remembered was this tiny little girl with straight black hair 
my hair was cut short and permed. (laughs) (laughs) So how many years was it uh, between when you left Vietnam and when you were reunited with your family? Um, It was seven years. Seven years. Wow. And really, as a young girl, that seven years from five to 12 is a lifetime. I'm so happy that this happened for you and that, you know, you came together. And so now as you were, you're all in the same household and, and you talked about the education thing, talk about now literally putting your dream into action and uh, maybe lead us into when you really decided, yeah, it's not just a dream from when I was five or six years old, I'm going to make medicine happen because it's a lot of work and it's a tough choice to go into the field that you're in. Medicine, yes, you're right, is a lot of work. I had to work very, very hard to get to this point. And because English is not my first language, and I was also put back one grade behind for ESL when I first came to Canada, I had to prove to myself that I had to work twice as hard to catch up. And so I ultimately skipped a grade when I actually got to a a standard level that I can uh, understand English and understand the math and everything that you need during elementary school. I was able to skip two grades to be at the same grade uh, as my 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 age group because I was behind by a year but um, I'm very thankful Michelle for the opportunities that my my mom gave my adopted mom gave me I often reflect back do I think that I would have had the same opportunities if she had not adopted me and I would be hard-pressed I'm not going to deny I don't think that would have happened if even if I landed up in Canada with my aunt but, you know, if I had been in Altona, would I have gotten to medicine? I, I, I don't know. If we, if my aunt and I had not met my mom and we got to stay in Winnipeg, I'm not sure that I would have made it to medicine. It's the unconditional love, the opportunities, the mentorship and the, and the guidance that she has provided for me. And I think that really the underlying recipe to all of that was the confidence, the confidence to believe in myself that I can do it. Because, you know, I think that we hard work, I'm not smart. I'm I'm gonna say it right out there. I don't consider myself smart, Michelle. I consider myself damn hardworking. (laughs) And so I had to make up for that. And so I really believe that through hard work, that's how you persevere. And so I'm very grateful that I got into medical school and I'm grateful that I actually got to medical school in Manitoba because it's the home province that gave me that second chance, right? And to be able to serve Manitobans and to be able to serve Manitobans in during this pandemic, it really makes me feel like I've gone full circle in terms of how I've been served for one and a half years in the refugee camp. And so it gives me such a sense of gratitude and being a physician is not easy and my husband and I we often have these conversations my husband's also an eMERGE physician and he's a palliative physician but we often joke and we say do we really want our boys to grow up to to go into medicine we know how hard we had to work it is such a privilege to be able to serve others but you have to have the heart for it and You know, in every occupation, um, it's hard to get into certain occupations, but you have to have the motivation and love and have that passion for it. So that's pretty much it there. Well, you obviously have a great love and passion for what you do, but for also for those coming behind you and those who are studying and, and, and the wellness of people in your profession, which I think is really, especially in COVID, we are, we hear about the challenges of, of being on the front lines and being where you are 
But I would think in an emergency room, it's coming at you all the time, no matter even before the pandemic hit, right? I mean, you're always making these decisions. And I'd like you to, to speak to um, when you were motivated to contact uh, Dr. Cal Botterill and incorporate this high performance physician curriculum for emergency room doctors. And my connection with Cal is sport. And if those of you who have listened to our podcast, we've talked to a lot of athletes who have gone through the challenges of sport and have learned through being okay with what's inside and getting into a certain place and a zone and lots of tools and exercises in high pressure situations, how to handle them. But now that's bridged over into the medical community. And and you were a big part of that in terms of ER doctors and ER training. Uh, maybe talk about the beginning of that and, and how much you spearheaded that and, and why. So I was a chief president in emergency medicine. I, I did the five-year Royal College specialty um, field for emergency medicine. And in my last year, as I was preparing for my Royal College exam, Cal Botterill was hired through the WHA to do this uh, patient safety uh, pilot project. And he gave grand rounds. And as I'm listening to him speak of this high performance and the similarities between high-functioning athletes and physicians and our stressful environments and that chaotic environment and how we remain calm under pressure, it, a light bulb went, up, went off. And I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to be able to incorporate this and make it a high-performance physician program? And so, you know, the Cal will laugh at this story because he remembers it so well, and so do I. So after I listened to him present ground rounds through to the physicians at the hospital, I had emailed Cal, and in our interaction and through the email, somehow he thought I was the male because I was I sounded quite assertive, and I was asking if he would mind meeting with me and what his thoughts are about implementing an HPP or a high performance physician program for the eMERGE residents. And I thought it would be wonderful considering I'm entering into a high stakes exam. And this, if it went well, we can actually continue this and sustain this program, not just only within emergency medicine, but throughout the faculty of, of medicine, of health sciences. And so when I met with Cal, it was in Brody Center and we had never put a face to the name. And I, I really didn't tell him what I was going to, I just assumed he thought I was a female. <laughs> I don't know why I assumed that, but here he is waiting and sitting. And when I walked up to him and introduced myself, he just had this look of like confusion in his face. And he goes, I totally was expecting for you to be a male, but it was like one of those things. It was his inside voice. And we just both laughed and it was such a nice icebreaker. So anyways, that's how Cal and I met. And so Cal put on a pilot high performance physician program with Dr. Jason Brooks and Adrian was part of that pilot as well during that time. And it was so well received to be able to take the strategies and the tools of the, of the high performance um, physician program into to our emergency medicine specialty and really equip us with the tools and strategies to remain calm, to have a certain mentality and high stress environments and to overcome that and, and basically troubleshooting techniques. And so um, after I graduated with my uh, FRCP emergency medicine, I actually walked into my uh, boss's office and I said, 
Would you consider if I coordinated the high performance physician program and spearheaded this um, for our department? And so it's implemented every year and it's offered to our uh, all of our emergency medicine residents. And then we also, it was so well received that we have offered it to general surgery, the attending staff in general surgery, pediatrics, both residents and attending staff, cardiac sciences, ICU, which is critical care, internal medicine and the subspecialties within internal medicine, ENT, and so it, and obstetrics, it's been very, very rewarding. And so I would say it, you know, you go into medicine, depending on what field you go into, there are textbooks and there, your residency teaches you well to become a competent physician in that specialty or in that area. But what you don't learn is the tools and strategies to deal with personal and professional wellness, which is such a hot topic right now, especially in the face of burnout. And so when the high performance physician program presented itself, it was just, it was emerging at the right time. And it really, really was such an impact to our healthcare field. And now that it's become such a big part of emergency medicine um, in terms of our residency program. It's one of one of our programs that I would say when during our accreditation is a key highlight in terms of resident wellness. And I think it's so important what you give to your patients and what you give at home to your family. If your personal life is not in balance with your professional life, the two has to be in sync with each other. So when you are stressed at home, you will not give your best to your patients. And when you take the worst of yourself home, you don't give all of you to your family. And for me, in terms, it's wonderful that I've learned tools and strategies from the high performance in terms of how to deal with stressful situations, like high stakes scenarios and acute resuscitations. But what I've really walked away from it is how to conserve myself for my family and how to channel that last 10% of myself at the end of a very difficult shift so that my children have all of me prior to bedtime and how to bring all of me and my A-game to my patients, even if my day didn't start quite on the right footing. So getting that frame and shifting that perspective and mentality, I know it sounds a little robotic, but having that shift in perspective before a shift and coming home at the end of the day is so important because my family needs me just as much as my patients, but I also need to be healthy for myself. So yeah. it's, it's really a triangle, right? Yeah. sounds like an athlete preparing for a race. You know, you, you have to be in the right mindset going in, but you need that last kick at the end of the day. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You need that to be your best time. You sprint to the finish line with your kids and your family. And I just yeah. think it's an incredible thing. So Moving into the future for you and maybe talking about present day, what is the future for Dr. Chow Pham and what are you still inspired to do every day? Or does it now shift maybe to your family? Just share with us what the future looks like for you. So a big part of me is is very much um, with our charity. So as I mentioned, the charity that I co-founded in 1996 is called Canadians Helping Kids in Vietnam. And we really had three missions. Our first mission was to be to sponsor families who are from low socioeconomic status so that we can keep the children in school so that they're not on the farms doing family farming with their families. 
Two, we ran medical and dental missions. And I've been very fortunate to actually take a team of Canadian physicians, nurses, um, as well as paramedics back to Vietnam. And our last mission was just back in 2019. And it was very gratifying. So we've actually ran four medical missions. And um, our third our third mission of our charity is to help with um, disaster relief. We have ran dental missions in the past. During this pandemic, it has become apparent to us that it's made it more challenging to actually do um, quality assurance with our program because you really have to have somebody on the ground in Vietnam to be able to, to help us with a sponsorship program. So during this pandemic, we have decided to pretty much put the charity on hold. But my uh, vision for CHKV is to still continue to do the medical and dental missions because in educating the physicians in Vietnam, when we run these medical missions, we go back and we teach the physicians there about acute resuscitations in trauma and obstetrics and um, medical emergencies. So we're actually helping them with the skill set to continue to educate and, and train their own physicians as mostly in resuscitation and also in bedside ultrasound. Um, and that's what my, my passion is, is to be able to go back and serve in that capacity. In terms of what does the future hold for me, what, that's from the charity perspective, but I love leadership. For me, leadership is a very big part of my bigger dream. I love my job as a clinician and that will never change because I love my patients. But I also believe that in any times of crisis and stress, such as the pandemic, what has been really evident is that we need good and strong leadership. And I did my MBA when I was actually a resident and I did it part-time and um, I completed my MBA from the University of Manitoba here um, when I was first year staff. And it's always been my dream to be able to put my goals of making a difference in terms of policy implementation and helping to implement strategies and, and guidelines to be able to um, make a difference. So I would, I would like to see a part of my future where I can actually take on a higher leadership role in, in medicine at some point. Um, but at this time, I'm very happy also being a mom to three beautiful, very high energetic boys. And my life is pretty full. My life is very full because I, I, I'm busy teaching ultrasound because I'm the ultrasound director. I love going to my clinical shifts and being an emergency physician. And the charity is, is, uh, is a big part of me, but, but I, I do have big dreams to lead another medical mission in the near future. I love it. And I love that you have three energetic boys. Yes. You know, no. I'm not surprised. They say we don't get more than we can handle. So I'm pretty sure you're going to be just fine. So I, we don't need to talk about COVID a whole lot. And you have touched on it because it's surrounding you guys. But now in COVID, what would you say to us from the outside looking in? Most of, I mean, most of us, we're, we're staying in our homes. We're staying away from from all that is COVID as much as we can, uh, you walk into it every day in the emergency room, no less. What would you say to all of us, what it's like for you and your colleagues and how you see us coming out of this? So 
during the second wave, it was pretty bad. It was very bad in the emergency department. It was bad in the critical care. It was bad on the internal medicine units. With the um, wave of the pandemic, the second wave of the pandemic, that was really our first exposure to Mm COVID-19. During the first wave, we really didn't see much COVID, but we had time in the first wave to prepare for truly the second wave. Right now, we still have to do our part in social distancing. We have to still play our part to listen to the healthcare leaders and really play our part to to be socially responsible. With the hope of the vaccine, doesn't mean that there is resolution of the pandemic anytime soon. Really, we don't, we won't see the end of it for at least another year until we really see the mass, uh, that the herd immunity work for us right now. It's, um, it's basically what I would say as, um, it's, we work in solidarity. The pandemic has really brought our eMERGE team together. What I mean by that is one of the things that I have really seen during this pandemic wave is that in times of stress, communities come together, people come together, and we have really functioned in solidarity. And I hope that will be the way to the future. We sometimes view that the system that we had was broken, but we have to take this moment to recognize that what we should come out of it is to be better and stronger. Yeah, I love that coming together. And we talk about that in a lot of walks of life now and how we need to get through this together. Thank you for that. I mean, it means a lot coming from someone who has seen it firsthand and sees it every day. I mean, you you deal with those things and the effects on the medical community. And um, that's important, I think, for us to know and to be encouraged by you. Chow, we have some rapid fire questions for you. Here hey. we go. What is your favorite sound? Well, after our chat so far, I'm sure you know that to me, my family is everything. So the sweetest and most calming sound of the day is hearing my three boys chuckle away with their dad. After a really bad and tiring day, the symphony of their laughter makes all the stress of my day melt away. Love it. What does being unapologetically human mean to you and why is it important? To be unapologetically human is to live my life with intention. And I think I mentioned that earlier. It's to really own my own strengths and weaknesses, my dreams and my desires, and also to learn from my successes and failures and to live each day with gratitude. And so from having heard my life story, you can see why that is important to me. If I live my life with intention and my heart is full of gratitude, I can live without any regrets. Wow. Okay. So lots of your life is serious. You're dealing with big time stuff. Um, What's something funny that's happened to you in any walk? It doesn't matter if it's at home or at work or in your past. Uh, You have three boys. Come on now. And a husband. I have two boys and a husband. There's lots of funny stuff that goes on around here. Uh, Do you have a favorite story that, you know, makes you smile and laugh every time you tell it? Well, I'm sure for, for the people who are listening in, who have boys there's something about boys and their genitals but you know (laughs) so every time we have baths we give our boys baths I just remembered when our boys were just a little bit younger and we were bathing them all at the same time our oldest boy stood up and the the next thing I knew I was I was leaning around and 
uh, grabbing something. I turn around and he literally stood up and full on peed on his brother. And I said, what are you boys doing? And the young, the middle boy who was peed on says, he's giving me a shower, a pee shower. And I was just like, oh my goodness. Anyways, I just, if you could be a fly on the wall in our household, mm. I am not sure what it is with boys, but they're just boys and their toys. What can I say? <laughs> And there are always some things that are always funny to yes. boys. Yes. On another vein, what does hope mean to you? So to hope is to cherish um, a desire with expectation of obtaining it. It includes a confidential trust that good will come. So hope is in great abundance um, in our world as all the nations actually battle during this COVID-19 pandemic, because that's it all comes back to me because hope is so important right now during this time that we're living in. And so there is really a light at the end of the tunnel when I think of the hope of the vaccine for all. And that to me, when I think of hope, that's like what I'm thinking right now in this day and age. That maybe leads us into my next question. What is your biggest takeaway from the great pause that COVID has created? As a physician and a Canadian, I know every day that hope, I'm I'm not naive to know that hope is far from being adequate to end this dreadful pandemic. The world needs outstanding leadership um, at all organizational levels um, in every nation and community to strategically implement policies to protect and conserve our health, our education, our food, public services, income security and social connection. At the same time, for me personally, the great pause has also given me the chance to reflect on what is truly important to us when our lives are under threat. And so over this past year, what I have valued uh, most is knowing that we're all in this together and seeing the solidarity that I mentioned in our communities. It has been heartwarming to witness the simple acts of kindness and gratitude that we have shown to one another in times of stress. Um, I hope that from this great pause, we can move forward with compassion. And instead of rebuilding a broken system, we have the opportunity, like I said, to build back a system that is better and, and stronger. Awesome. Oh, who is the bravest leader you know? Why is that? And what elements of humanness did they display and allow others to display? You know what, Michelle, in all honesty, I, I don't know that I have one bravest leader in mind. However, when I think of what great leaders are, they are those who put their needs before themselves for the greater good. So it's very fitting in my mind that the bravest leaders whom I have seen during this pandemic has been the frontline workers, our grocery clerks, our delivery drivers, our healthcare workers, our caregivers, Thank God for the caregivers to take care of my three kids so I can work in the front line. The teachers, the farmers, they are real. They are our real life leaders in our communities. And with leadership um, come sacrifices and responsibilities to raise the quality of life for others. So I have seen my medical colleagues in the eMERGE work long extended hours in PPE. Some have allergic reactions to it. They're drenched and they're exhausted. They're missing breaks, but they're showing up to work every day, day after day, risking their lives to for their patients, um, all while providing compassionate care and keeping families updated because during lockdown, families can't be there to support their patient, to support their loved ones. And so 
a kindness that I have witnessed each day for our patients and towards ourselves, especially as well, is palpable and uh, it's what sustains our work morale. What an incredible show of humanity in that. Okay, who are two or three people who have influenced you and how did they impact your life? I think you will know the answer to my uh, to, to, to that question. But in any person, personal journey, Michelle, one requires the support of many others. And so this is very apparent when I look back on all who have walked with me and still walk with me daily. I wouldn't be here today without my parents' sacrifice to help me flee from Vietnam as a refugee boat child. And um, as I mentioned, I've come to terms with a lot of the emotional um, challenges of understanding that, but I see it now through the lens of a mom. I will always be grateful to my auntie who braved the seas with me and forfeited her chance to immigrate to the U.S. at the time and chose to stay back to take care of me when she was only 17 years old. Like that's telling a teenager to take care of a sick child with TB in the refugee camp. I am grateful to the Red Cross physicians in a refugee camp who treated my TB for one and a half years so that I can immigrate to Canada. And, you know, I, I think... I think back, if it wasn't for lining up every morning, I wouldn't have recognized what medicine can do for people. And it has really changed my life because with their help, I made two very important decisions. And firstly, that I would do that all that I could uh, and I didn't forget what they did for me so that I could actually become a physician and serve the people of Manitoba who offered me their home and their wonderful land. And I owe my second life to my adopted mom, my Canadian adopted mom, who did, who not only gave me a second birth, but she gave me unconditional love and the opportunities to live my best life. And she also sponsored my family and my uh, from Vietnam and reunited us. And lastly, but always saving the best for last to my husband, who is my greatest support and equal partner in life. You know, the late Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg referred to her husband as her unicorn. And how lucky am I to have married my own unicorn? Actually, funny, I'm actually wearing a T-shirt. I don't know if you can see. It's uh, RBG. And it says here that um, my husband got me this. Women belong in all places where decisions are made. They always say, behind every successful person and is an even more supportive partner. And that's what my husband is for me. So they're my village. And they will continue to be, which is the best part. Well, Dr. Chow Pham, you have uh, taken some time to be in our Heroes in Our Midst Village and you've made a difference. You've made an impact on me. Just being willing to share your story in such a real way and to think back to an unimaginable journey and yet you've proven that it's possible. And when you say you don't consider yourself smart, but you worked hard enough to make it happen, I think speaks to so many of us because we put ourselves in boxes and we say, well, I could never have done that or I wouldn't have done that. You had a dream and a mission and a heart for what you wanted to do. And that's one of the many things that makes you a hero. We are so glad you are in our midst and you are Manitoban and we couldn't be more happy that you have joined us on, on this podcast journey of ours. So thank you for sharing your time and your inspiration with us. Thank you, Michelle. It was a wonderful opportunity. What a story. What a journey and what a message for us all, especially in this time, that we are all in this together. 
We need to continue to strive for that togetherness and not forget it when we reach the other side of this pandemic and all that it's brought to our lives. If you enjoyed today's story, you can find more of the same anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'd love if you'd share them, subscribe, and, and follow us. And if you want one place to find it all, go to our website, heroesinourmidst.ca. Thanks for listening.